welcome back. This is the second part of a two-part podcast on autism uh, from the SSA. So if you haven't listened to the first episode, I'd encourage you to go back and, and do so now. It's available on the SSA website or on ACAST. So the first part looked at autism and addiction and the interactions between the two. Uh, it looked at treatment and diagnosis, as well as uh, some of the implications for behavioural addictions and, and really how we look at both autism and addiction. Um, in this second part, we're going to be looking at more at uh, personalisation of treatment, issues of retention, and some of the gaps in the literature, the things that we don't know about autism and addiction, as well as looking at, then at some of the implications for treatment and policy. As with part one, we're incredibly grateful uh, for contributions from people in the SABA team, that's S-A-B-A-A, the Substance Use, Alcohol and Behavioural Addictions in Autism. And that's a priority setting partnership. It's a project that aims to prioritise, um, identify and prioritise the evidence and the uncertainties around the evidence that relate to substance use disorders and autism. I've heard it said of autism that if you meet one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. And the same could easily be said of, uh, of people who use drugs. So this all kind of then starts to converge around this personalisation uh, issue. Alongside working out how you can make services that are, are accessible for autistic people, you also need to talk to individuals and, and ask what they need and respond to it. Professor Julia Sinclair runs an alcohol care team at University Hospital Southampton and is one of the leads of the SABA project. Actually, if we're talking about personalised medicine, which we know gives people better outcomes, we need to be matching the treatment and the, the therapy sort of module to what people's needs are. And so if that means that somebody comes in who, you know, requires, um, you know, face to face or single one on one therapy, then then that's what we need to deliver, as opposed to saying, well, all that you're going to be offered is group therapy. Actually, things that are autism friendly will also be good quality for other people. And part of what we had in the um, SARPA project was people talking about making sure that, um, you know, information that was available, public, ad, you know, advert, adverts um, and aware, awareness raising were actually autism friendly. And by being autism friendly, they're likely to be more accessible by other people, too. Professor Sam Chamberlain is a professor of psychiatry and runs a behavioural addictions clinical service in the NHS. He's also one of the co-leads of the SABA project. The other thing says that a lot of services are doing now, is, which I think is a really good thing, is of course we develop our leaflets and even a website to describe a service and the treatment pathways, but then they should be read by people with lived experience of autism and you know other conditions and that then feeds into it so they can be improved and made more suitable so as well as starting with those kind of key um, features of being concise and clear um, and so on then we can also get feedback during that process of writing this material as well which um, for example in our gambling service that we're developing you know we're, we're doing that um, and that's quite a change from the I suppose the classic medical model right where you go to your doctor and your doctor knows best and it's, you know, and probably the clinical team have written all the materials, but it's not had any input from people with lived experience. Um, so I'm glad to say, you know, the NHS has really changed in that sense. There's still more work to do, but we're seeing lived experience become part of the clinical um, models to a greater extent, which is a good thing. Chris Torrey is an autistic person who has worked in addiction treatment services. 
calm environments and a range of treatment options that suit different people benefit everybody it's not about dismantling services and then rearranging them to only suit a group of people who you could argue were in a minority numbers wise in terms of treatment needs it's about good universal design principles now, I'm always a big fan of uh, universal design principles, good design principles, and, and think that probably most uh, addiction services, indeed most places you visit, could uh, could benefit from sharpening up on them. Janine took these issues of, of personalisation and really, really opened my eyes as to how important it is to talk to people about their experiences, because so many things that, that you might take for granted in services just just may not apply, um, up to and including uh, rating systems, and that stalwart of addiction treatment service, you know, retention. Actually, for an autistic person, retention may not mean what you think it means. Janine Robertson is the National Clinical Advisor for Autism in the NHS. She is a consultant clinical psychologist and the third co-lead for the SABA project. To get a sense of how the person think best thinks, and if somebody thinks best in terms of numbers or colours, so if you're needing to preserve an CPT, you need to rate things. Um, and, and some people say to me, but I don't like rating things. I prefer having colour. Blue means this. Yellow means that. That actually they're different things that mean something to them. But it starts from day one in terms of how you make the appointment. Is everything, is it online? Is it face to face? Is there an option? Um, depending on how long it is, the kind of language you... It's, there's so many, um, even precursors, to the actual CBT itself. It'll be, how do you engage somebody? If they don't turn up for the first appointment, is it that they don't like opening their post? If you offer them a morning appointment, but actually they don't get up till three, they're not going to turn up. It's, there are all sorts of things, and we know that in you know health service, very often if somebody DNAs, you discharge them after a few times and, you know, it's very difficult. But you always have to think about somebody's autistic. What might be difficult? The person doesn't like answering the phone. Do they prefer text? Do they need prompting? So they could be very basic things just to get them through the door, to get them engaged in the first instance. And the other thing that just lastly, I suppose it's important, and we've often seen people... Um, who've been through different types of treatment, interventions, therapies, and so on. And you'll work, you'll find out that they saw it all, that they did attend and they went through right to the end. But it's not so much that they found benefit in what they were doing, but rather that they that they'll say, I I agreed to attend. So I saw it through to the end. So if they had 10 sessions, they'd go to all 10 sessions. They didn't find it helpful. Whereas maybe you, maybe I would say, well, actually, this is not working for me and not go. So you cannot see success as somebody who sits through 10 sessions. And we're back to conversations about retention. Uh, we will always return to conversations about retention in addiction treatment services. It's always been worth being cautious interpreting retention as success, but perhaps be even more cautious when working with autistic people. One of the things that Chris Torrey did within his service was make those connections with autism services and kind of galvanise that interest within the service. And so there are people that you can invite into your treatment uh, team to talk about some of these complexities. When I was working in substance misuse, we got the staff from the local neurobehavioural service to come and talk to our staff about how they might have conversations with people who they thought might be neurodivergent and who may not know and 
talk about how you might begin to have those conversations in an addiction service and a bit about how to adapt services and support and, and things like that so you can do it there's not a great deal of tailored support available generally speaking for most autistic people with substance misuse support needs as I understand it and we're back to the gaps in in our understanding of of autism and addiction and this is one of the things that the Sabah project was set up to do is to identify those gaps if not to to try and fill them by by getting people in the same room and uh, and working out what those priorities were and, and the main thing is about the experience of addiction uh yeah how this ties into the autistic experience in a way that is fully different from the non-autistic experience is poorly understood and that's one of the gaps I think we're hoping to fill if I could fully answer this question I wouldn't need to be involved in this project nobody would um, there is some evidence around autism and addiction but the evidence base is not particularly comprehensive um, substance misuse isn't comprehensively understood I don't think it's controversial to say that autism could certainly be better understood so yeah a good question one which i hope we'll get a better answer to that's useful for autistic people soon so so what we did is we conducted uh, what's called a delphi process um, so this is where we bring together groups of experts including people with lived experience and the aim of that was to identify the top priorities so the things that need to be addressed and um, that we don't yet know the answer to in three domains so we had research, policy, and practice. So in terms of the gaps that we found, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the, the gaps were legion. And so what we were really then asking people in terms of engagement with our stakeholder and stakeholders at groups, and then into the Delphi process was really about given the oceans of gaps that there were, which were the places that they felt really that we should start. And after a process of, of, of whittling things down, we were able to kind of cluster things broadly, although obviously there is some overlap between policy and practice and um, research. And when we asked people to rank them, we were asking them specifically to, to kind of give an idea of where you would start. Because one of the things we found in the earlier rounds of the Delphi process was that everybody thought that everything was pretty important. And so we had almost the opposite problem that you get in many consensus, that it wasn't so much that there was a, um, a lack of consensus. It was that every, everybody thought that everything was important. And so how did you actually go from that to finding the things that were most important, which didn't then dismiss the other things that people thought were important? The neurology and the basis of autism are poorly understood. And then you have the neurological uh, sort of factors of addiction and compulsion and trying to reconcile and differentiate those things is that's a really complex question um, and then you have the I guess what you might call the uh, softer stuff around access and I mean it's not soft in some ways it's the it's the core of the thing and um, one sort of side of the story um so then you have the the stuff about accommodation access experience needs preferences so yeah it's a really big field a really big uh gappy field and it's good that people with 
different understandings of uh, needs and, and the reasons can come together and try and say, well, how do we look at this together and work together to do something useful? So in a big gappy field, what were those priorities? In terms of the practice, um, the kind of top rated one was was um, the question, you know, what adaptations to current approaches are needed to increase the effectiveness of um, substance and behavioural addictions treatment for autistic people? And then in terms of the research, the top rated one was um, what are the specific triggers? So we're talking therefore about risk factors um, or facilitators of um, substance and behavioral addictions in autistic people um, that and what steps could be taken to prevent them. So, you know, again, just to look at that kind of etiology of trying to understand what would be specific um, for people with autism. I wondered if some of the reasons why there were so many gaps is because solutions to this approach would involve collaboration between kind of disparate organisations or research groups that aren't used to working with each other. Yes. And I, and, you know, this was my kind of one of my interests in in starting this was this realisation that here we had, you know, two spectrum conditions that had significant overlap, but actually, um, you know, it was too niche in either kind of um, field to be um, sufficiently um, kind of of a priority for anyone. And then, of course, the way that our academic systems are set up, you know, journals that are interested in autism are probably not that interested in addictions and journals that are interested in addiction are probably not that interested in autism. And so consequently, it's actually quite hard to, first of all, get a grant to look at these things because it will be reviewed by either somebody in autism or somebody in, in addiction. Um, and then similarly, when you publish it, which we have yet to do with ours, is how do you find the reviewers who feel that, you know, this overlap is, is something that is important? So I think for me, it's really, really important about taking, you know, us out of our silo working. And the further you go into a field and, you know, the deeper you get into it, the further you remove yourself from actually the reality of the human condition, which is far more complex than that. And so, you know, the thing that was so important about Saba for me was the fact that actually we get back to what I would see as good personalized care, which is dealing with the person in front of us who, like all of us, is a complex human being. Another issue um, linked to, to what was um, just commented on is I think there's a big structural issue with a lack of funding to better understand these conditions. And so there's a top level problem, which is mental health doesn't get enough funding. So although many funding organisations now talk a lot about mental health being a priority, if you look at the numbers, far more money goes into other types of conditions. I mean, mental health gets a drop in the ocean of, of funding compared to the suffering that it causes or leads to or is associated with. Um, but then if you look within mental health conditions, I would argue that addiction... Um, and autism are neglected as well. So you've got a relatively small pot of funds to do research, policy and practice. Um, and then that's for mental health. So that's already small. And then within that, these conditions that are often completely overlooked. And that that is a, a massive, uh, massive issue as well as the um, issue of sort of siloed working so that to understand these things, we need to all work together collaboratively. I mean, I think there's a range of things. So obviously the NHS now has a big focus on health inequalities. 
but those health inequalities are focused around cardiovascular disease. So, you know, to kind of further on from, from, from what Sam was saying just there is, is that, you know, people want to get the biggest sort of impact and, and you have the data. This is the first thing, you know, in, unless you have data, it doesn't exist. And if you have two spectrum conditions on which there is poorly collected data, then it really doesn't exist. So it seems that the uh, the knowledge gaps as well as the challenges are, are legion or at least approaching legion. Um, but we're a forward looking podcast at the SSA and uh, I'd like to channel a certain level of uh, non-toxic positivity. And so I asked the team what their hopes were for the next five to ten years in this area. In the next five to ten years, I'd love to see autism and neurodivergence included more in the training that people get when they take up roles in substance misuse services. I'm aware that substance misuse services generally have quite a lot of flex in designing their own induction processes because they're variously commissioned and come from different charities and different trusts but it would be great if it was commonly understood that there will be autistic people and other neurodivergent people coming to substance misuse services who may struggle to access them as they're currently set up and to talk people through what they can do to to support them. I would also love to see a better understanding of autism in its various presentations because lack of understanding and narrow assumptions lead to prejudices and suboptimal treatment, suboptimal experiences and if someone has a bad experience of a healthcare service they might not come back. Um, the research needs to be done and it needs to get into the services and that's that's kind of the challenge. Um, I make that sound straightforward and obviously it's not. It's a complex environment to be doing things in and sort of sending information around in but yeah that's that's it. I suppose it would be really helpful for us to get a better understanding of of where there's an overlap, where there are things that probably are similar, whether you're neurotypical or you're autistic, and then we know certain things will work, or where actually there might be something really different and we need to really get a better understanding of that. I mean, I think one of the big strengths, I mean, obviously it's it's across research at the minute anyway, not that ours was a research project, is, is the fact that we have absolutely included people with lived experience in and for people with lived experience to be coming forward to be part of this and and say yes this can be an issue for people I think again that's important it isn't just coming from clinicians or researchers but uh, people out there either working in the field or autistic people themselves who've maybe had their own difficulties I think that's where some of the biggest shifts come I think when we have individuals on board and able to say some of those things. So I think with Saba, I mean, it's been a really great um, exercise in co-production. And that's one of the things I'm really, really kind of pleased about with it is that it's brought together people. I've learned so much about um, autism that I, I, I never knew before, which has, has in itself been, been really helpful. Um, so I think in terms of co-production, it's been great. It's been a bit like a dating agency in terms of that sort of out silo working and getting you to meet people in, in a different field, including people with lived experience who, who also work in academia. It's, I think, helped also break down that barrier between, you know, our professional lives and our, our personal lived experience. 
in that quite a few of the people we approached as academics said, yes, I'm also keen to be involved with this because I also have lived experience of X. And I think the more that we can allow for the fact that we all have lived experience and, and we, you know, we bring that into the work that we do, um, whether, you know, that's an open um, acknowledgement or otherwise, I think is really, really important. As was said, really, I suppose um, through the, this process, we found that there's an awful lot of unanswered questions. But what this process allows us to do is identify good places to start. So what we'd hope will happen next is that people can work together from different disciplines, um, specifically to try to address some of those questions which will you know need funding and so we'll need to be thinking about um, finding funding um, so for example one way of addressing you know the lack of understanding of the triggers which as was mentioned this is a key priority that was identified so then you might want to follow people up over time uh, with these conditions over a number of years and see what the triggers are um, but that, as you can appreciate, that is a big logistic challenge. That is not an easy thing to do properly and at large scale. But I suppose that's one of the things that I, you know, personally think could be really valuable. Many of the issues that came up with the Sabah project were issues that first interested me in, in the field of addiction. This idea of, of broad principles of work that, that are effective but of a personalisation approach that, that means that you're sat with this incredibly complex human being in front of you trying to work out what it is that you can do to help them in terms of treatment at any rate. The Sabah Project has been an amazing example of, um, of co-production, of involving people with lived experience and of identifying those gaps. And the fact that there are so many gaps in, um, in what we know about autism and addiction and that overlap I find quite exciting um, and, and yes it does leave us with a lot of unanswered questions but it, it gives us a clear steer on as Sam Chamberlain said on a good starting place on, on where to go next. So if, if you're working in research policy and practice and you're interested in this area please do get in contact with the SABA team. The contact details um, and more information about this project are on the SSA website. It just leaves me to say thank you to the SABA team, to uh, Julia Sinclair, Janine Robinson Sam Chamberlain and uh, Chris Torrey who participated in this podcast and of course you the listener. Goodbye.